0: listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com.
1: Look with me at Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 35. Luke 18, verse 35, in our Father's Word. As he drew near to Jericho, Jesus, as Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. This is an outcast. This is a guy who cannot see. His eyesight is not working, and he's begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. You know, faith stops God in his tracks. Faith stops God in his tracks. Faith moves you forward. And faith moves the agenda of God forward as well. Do you understand that? Faith stops God in his tracks. Faith will move you forward. Faith will move the agenda of God forward. Look with me at verse 43. Immediately, that word that's used there, Luke uses it repeatedly in his gospel. Immediately, instantaneously. This is the last healing that is recorded in luke's gospel after this the passion the cross the ultimate agenda of jesus christ and the ultimate miracle the resurrection is the focus of the rest of this gospel so this is the last miraculous healing of jesus in this gospel and true to form luke helps us understand that it's immediate It's instantaneous, that's what's used here. There's no mistaking this kind of a healing, this type of power that's unique to Jesus. Immediately, the man recovered his sight and followed him, notice, glorifying God and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This blind man is the only one who can really see. There are a bunch of people who have eyesight and they're all blind. Do you notice this blind man is sitting by the roadside begging? Would have been an outcast by the people. They would have overlooked him. And he hears this commotion because Jesus of Nazareth is coming by. You notice that's how the crowd identifies Jesus in a merely naturalistic human way. Jesus of Nazareth, giving his name and giving the location of where he grew up. But the man doesn't respond. The blind man, who's the only one who can really see, doesn't respond with just merely a naturalistic response. He doesn't refer to him. Did you notice that? Doesn't call him Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, please come by. Please have mercy on me. He doesn't do that. Why is it that the blind man is the only one who can really see? You know, that's the case in the world in which we live. There are plenty of people who have eyesight, plenty of people who have great physical strength, a lot of money, a lot of capability, a lot of blessing that God actually gave them. And yet they're the weakest people around. Totally inept, totally incapable of seeing when God is moving. It is the blind man who sees clearly and it's the people with excellent, perfect eyesight who can't see a doggone thing. All they see is Jesus of Nazareth, but this blind beggar sees Jesus, the son of David. That's right. This man's desperation ends up being his greatest asset And Jesus stopped. He stops. Because this blind outcast saw something in Jesus that got Jesus' attention. See, Jesus is never so busy that he's not willing to stop when somebody gets it. When the light bulb goes on, when the circuits start to blow, when you understand something about Jesus that beforehand you did not understand, Jesus will stop because faith stops God. It was this blind, outcasts, spiritual vision that got the attention of God. Does God stop when he sees you moving in the course of your life? Is your faith stopping Jesus right in his tracks? You know, we've got precedent here. Jesus is not so busy. Going on and doing his thing. He's not like us, so busy we don't have time to stop. Jesus is not so busy that he's unwilling to stop. When you realize something about him you otherwise didn't realize, faith stops God, faith moves us forward. Look at how this man's life was absolutely transformed because he was willing to call out and ask God to move. And God said, sure, I'm happy to move on your behalf. When you walk by faith, when I walk by faith, when we take a step of faith and we build our lives upon the vision of God, not naturalistic vision, not the things that we can see how we see them, but the way God sees them our lives move forward. How many of us would like to move forward in our walk with God? You do have a say in whether or not you move forward with God, and you do have a say, I do have a say, your family has a say, the church has a say in whether or not people will glorify God because of the step that we take in response to God's initiative. Jesus knew that that blind beggar was there by the roadside Jesus knew that this event was going to happen. Jesus knew that it would result in the glory of God. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus explains his ministry. Beginning in verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, quote, "'The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me "'to proclaim good news to the poor.'" He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So when we get to Luke chapter 18, Jesus is fulfilling what he said he was going to fulfill. He restores a blind man's eyesight and in the process, all the people who were blind spiritually are able to see something because of that blind man's spiritual vision that they would otherwise not have seen, the identity of Jesus Christ. The identity of Jesus Christ, while they're calling him merely Jesus of Nazareth as a mere mortal, he uses a phrase, a title of Jesus that has to deal with with Jesus' mission and his identity and how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, how Jesus fits into the Old Testament. Notice that the blind man has the clearest sight of all, as we're going to understand in a moment. Remember, the Bible is the best commentary on itself. It's the blind man who recognizes that this is not just Jesus of Nazareth. This is Jesus, Son of David. Now, if you're not careful, if you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, if you're not in the process of letting the Old Testament be the commentary on the New Testament, if you're not in the process of looking at the Bible as the best commentary on itself, you might read a passage like this and say, well, yeah, Jesus had miraculous power to heal a blind person and move on to the next verses and forget the core nugget that's presented here in this passage. This passage has to deal not just with the fact that Jesus had miraculous supernatural power. That's not just what this passage is about. It's about what that miraculous supernatural power means, about the identity of Jesus. How is it that Jesus is able to miraculously heal a blind man immediately, instantaneously in a way that was by no means common in the day and by no means common ever since. The healing happens instantaneously in the name of Jesus because of who Jesus is. And we get a clue to that very clearly through this blind man who actually saw more clearly than the crowd by his calling him the son of David. Now, we'll get there in a moment, but what I want you to understand is that it is the blind man who sees clearly enough to call out to God and to call Jesus who he really is, and that's what makes the difference in the blind man's life. That's what ends up getting the attention of the crowd, not just Jesus. The crowd ends up glorifying God because of the faith of the blind man who could see. The calling out of the blind man to Jesus, stopping God in his tracks, his life moves forward, the whole crowd moves forward, and so does the agenda of God. If God's agenda is going to move forward in your life and in your family and in the family of God in the church, it's going to happen in direct proportion to our building our lives on the identity of Jesus Christ. Not speculation, not our own strength, not our own eyesight, naturally speaking, not our own vision. You've got to have, I've got to have, your family has to have it, my family has to have it, the body of Christ has to have something that we've lost. God's vision. And that vision is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ, his identity. We're going to get there in a moment as we look at the Old Testament and the significance of this phrase that the blind man uses who could see very clearly, son of David. But you know, most of the lessons that I have learned in my life, I've learned through failure. And I don't mind sharing a failure or two of mine from time to time. Because maybe in my sharing my own failure, you might see that there's hope for you. And there's hope for the agenda of God to be advanced in your life in spite of you. Because I know that's how God works in my life. He doesn't work because of me. He works in spite of me. When I was a freshman at Rutgers University, I lived in the Tinsley dormitory, you've heard me talk about that, but I haven't talked to you yet about what happened to me in my sophomore year when I lived in the Ford dormitory. I shared a suite with two bedrooms and three other roommates, we had bunk beds. And I was in the lower bunk bed of one of those bedrooms in that suite. And I was dating a gal, or at least beginning to date a gal, And I did what you should do if you're in the process of dating or thinking about dating or thinking about getting married. Once you get married, it's over. (laughs) But I didn't take dating as just, you know, I just wanted to date and just take up somebody else's time and take up my time. I took dating as the idea of a courtship, that if I was going to date somebody, it would have as its purpose the idea of ultimately wanting to marry that person if that person was somebody whom God would want me with. And I remember being next to my bed in the Ford dormitory in my sophomore year, on my knees, kneeling against that bed and asking God for wisdom and insight about this person who I had just begun to date. And I was waiting on God, asking him for wisdom, beginning to seek him about wisdom. And there was a knock at the door, not my bedroom door, but the door to our suite in the dormitory. And I got up from my bedside, in the middle of that prayer, you should never allow something to interrupt your prayer life. And I went over to the door and I opened up the door and there she was, the gal that I was praying about. You know, I never finished that prayer. I got interrupted in seeking God for wisdom and insight. And I began to believe God, that she was the one. You know, you can watch Christian television. It's not so much Christian when it comes to this. You can go to websites, Christian websites. It's not so very Christian when it comes to this. You can listen to supposedly Christian podcasts that aren't really Christian when it comes to this. And you can hear a whole lot about believing God and trusting God and claiming it, naming it and claiming it. And I named it and claimed it so many times that that was the one for me. And I was believing God and trusting God for something and someone that he never promised to give me. And I lost, humanly speaking, years of my life. Years of my life because I based the next steps that I took on a promise based on me putting words in God's mouth. Have you ever done that, put words in God's mouth, believed him for something that he never told you he was going to do, insisted that God give you what you know he needs to give you. After all, he's obligated. I'm asking in Jesus' name, and therefore, whatever I ask in Jesus' name, I might have. I am so thankful, and you should be too. That part of the whole point in asking God for anything is to let Him give the answer. That when God says no to one thing, He says yes to something else, and that God's no. It's actually a big yes. I lost entire years of my life, naturally speaking, humanly speaking, because I put words in God's mouth. I insisted that he give me what I want, what I was believing him for, when it was completely subjective. God did not tell me that I had a right to believe him for what I was asking him to give me. So you've got to be careful that in your believing God and you're having faith, This is the kicker. If your faith is going to stop God in his tracks and move you forward and result in God's agenda moving forward, you've got to make sure that you have faith in the promise of God, not your own promise that you're insisting God give you. That's why I share that heartbreaking, devastating circumstance in my own life because I know that there are others, whether you're listening by podcast or radio or whether you're listening right now. You've believed God for something. You're, you're exercising faith, but it's not biblical faith. You have eyesight, but you're blind, as I was, to what God wanted to do. I'm so thankful that God's yes came to me years later in the person I eventually married. See, you've got to be careful, I've got to be careful that your faith, my faith, is based on a clear, objective promise of God. Your vision and every step that you take in your life has to be on a biblical promise of God. That's what this quote-unquote blind man was doing. He's the guy that had the vision of God while the other people who had the vision that God had given them, naturally speaking, could not see, they couldn't see. They had their own understanding of Jesus of Nazareth, their own understanding of what the kingdom of God would look like, their own understanding of what God should do. Want to shut up and go back to begging? You're blind, you're an outcast. You have nothing to do with the kingdom agenda of God. And Jesus' behavior actually helps us understand that the outcast and the poor, when you are in a situation of desperateness, your desperation is the greatest opportunity for God to move. Amen. God doesn't do end runs around people who have need. He uses those needs to advance his agenda and to advance you, to advance you, to move you forward when you have biblical faith. When you have biblical faith, you will have biblical vision. When you have biblical vision, you will take biblical steps in the right direction. You won't waste time. You won't get spanked the way you otherwise would. You won't learn the hard way. This man calls Jesus of Nazareth, whom he was. That's what he was, in part. But this blind man sees what they, other people couldn't see when he calls him the son of David. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, I want you to understand a thing or two about this title that this blind man who had the best eyesight of anybody around uses in reference to Jesus. And you will understand through this instance alone how the Bible is the best commentary on itself. And the next time you see the phrase, the title, Son of David, you won't just gloss over it. You will maybe understand the Old Testament significance of this, which is still relevant today. The monumental words that come out of this blind beggar help us understand he was the richest man around. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, this is about King David. Look what it says. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, by the way, when somebody has peace, when a nation has peace, when a nation is at peace with its enemies, that's a sign of divine favor. When a nation is in turmoil with its surrounding nations, with the other nations around it, it can be a good indication of God disciplining or judging the nation. That's for another day, another time. But look at verse 2, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. In other words, David is a little bit upset that he's living a more luxurious life than the God who's deeply in his heart. Remember, David is called the man after God's own heart. Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. And then God intervenes because Nathan at that point seems to be acting as a mere mortal, but as a prophet of God, God intervenes and speaks to him and helps him understand, you know what, I need to give you some insight and you need to give it to David. Verse four, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent from my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Notice the title that God gives King David. In God's sight, he's a prince, not a king. That's significant as we're going to look at the next few verses. Verse nine, and I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And even to this day, King David is considered one of the greatest men in all of history. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appoint judges over my people, Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now hold on to your seat here, the house. When your days are fulfilled, in other words, when you die and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you or your seed who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house For my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We have a house, a throne, and a kingdom. Notice it says forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And then there's a parenthetical statement here, which is an allusion to Solomon, King Solomon, who would be a descendant of David. This is often what happens in the Old Testament when you read a passage of prophecy, that there are statements made about the immediate future which give credence to the eventual future, what's on the horizon in the long term. And that's what's said here. Verse 14, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of man. It's a reference to Solomon. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Verse 16, And your house, getting back to David, Getting back to the promise of this particular seed, this particular person, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever, in accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to david there's a house, a rule, and a nation. This is the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with David. King David, the prince of Israel as God refers to him in light of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. There's a house. The implication here is that there is a person to whom that house belongs. Seed, offspring is used, a singular word. The word offspring is used to imply that there is one person coming from David in the future once David is dead and buried. And he will have a house. And he will be characterized as being a ruler. That's why the word throne is used. Nobody has a throne unless they are in charge of something. And this person is said to be a ruler in a particular house, the house of David. And this person will have subjects. They will have a kingdom or in particular a nation. This is the Davidic covenant, and it it piggybacks off of and is it, it expounds upon the Abrahamic covenant that we see in Genesis twelve and Genesis fifteen, Genesis seventeen, and Genesis twenty two. That now it's being pared down because we see in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis that God promised to Abram or Abraham one particular offspring. That through your one particular offspring all peoples on the entire earth would be blessed. And here in 2 Samuel, we see that pared down even more, given even more clarity, more precision, more accuracy, that that particular seed would not only be from the line of Abraham, but from the line of David, that it would be a literal kingdom, a nation, that he would have a literal throne, and that implies that he would be a ruler, and he would come and rule in a house, the house of David, the line of David. This is why now, when we look at the second chapter of Luke's gospel, the circuits should be blowing, the clarity should be coming. When we look at Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we read these amazing words that help us understand and the lineage of David. This idea of what this man says, this blind man says, when he repeatedly refers, he does it twice in Luke 18, he refers to Jesus as not just Jesus of Nazareth, but Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. They try to shut him up the first time. The people who could see try to shut him up because they can't see. And he can't be shut up because he understood a thing about the Messiah. He understood something about the Davidic covenant, about the promise of God. And he understood that these miracles that Jesus was performing weren't because he was just merely a miracle worker, but because this is that. Because this Jesus who's performing these instantaneous immediate miracles that he had apparently heard of, even though he was blind naturally. Spiritually, he could see that there's something more to this Jesus than just being a miracle worker. He recognizes Jesus as as being that one that's spoken of in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He recognizes that this Jesus is the one that is alluded to expounded upon in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22. He recognizes that this is that, that Jesus is not just a miracle worker. He's the son of David. That's a million-dollar phrase that if you were a Jewish person and you heard him saying for the first time, that's what this crowd seems to do, son of David, Jesus son of David what are you out of your mind you're not only blind you're a knucklehead you're saying that Jesus is the son of David and he says you're darn right that's exactly what I'm saying can't you see it why is it that you people have wasted eyesight why is it that you can't see what I know in my heart is true Why is it that you don't understand what the scriptures teach about Jesus? He's not just Jesus of Nazareth, not just a human being. He is the son of David from the line of David. That's what Luke is presenting through his whole gospel. This is the Messiah. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's why he's mentioning the house and lineage of David. That's why he's saying that Joseph, he's not wasting precious space Every word of the Bible, every yode and tittle, every least stroke of the pen is there for a reason. And when we get to the Greek New Testament, it's the same way. Every word, every letter is God-breathed, inspired by God. Luke is not wasting space. He's trying to help you and me have faith, the faith of a blind beggar. Your desperation can be God's biggest opportunity to move in your life, to stop God in his tracks, and to move the agenda of God forward. Would you stop thinking that God can't use you because you're hindered and hampered and limited? What if that blind beggar thought, Well, I'm just a blind beggar and I'm an outcast? What if he thought of himself? What if he thought of Jesus the way the people who had eyesight thought of Jesus? We wouldn't be reading this account today. God wouldn't have stopped in his tracks. He wouldn't have moved forward in his own life and the agenda of God wouldn't have moved forward resulting in all the people praising Almighty God. What is hindering you that God can use as an asset to advance his glory, to advance his agenda? Son of David is a huge million dollar phrase. It's a million dollar phrase that this blind man who really could see uses to help the other people understand the identity of Jesus Christ. It was this blind man, it took a blind man to help people who could see really see. And what they needed to see was not just a miracle Miracles are great. Signs and wonders, great if God's really doing them wonderful. But if you're just enamored with the sign and the wonder, you might miss the wonder maker, the son of David. This man then ends up with the whole course of his life changing, the whole direction of his life changing He's got everything to gain just like you and just like me. What is it in your life that is so important you can't follow Jesus? What is it in your life that is so important you just can't give it up to follow the son of David? Do we really see who Jesus is and what that means, what the ramifications are, that you can trust Jesus. If you really see who he is, if you really understand him as son of David, then live like it. Amen? Amen. You can build your entire life on the reputation of Jesus, the promise of God. The blind man did it, and so can you. Do you recognize that Jesus is the son of David, the promised one from the Old Testament? He's the promised one in the New Testament. He's the one upon whom every word of Scripture is written about him. Every word of Scripture is written about Jesus from the first word in Genesis to the last word in Revelation. All of the Scriptures point to him. Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus opened up their eyes and helped them understand that everything in Moses and the prophets, everything in the scriptures was written about him. You might be in a situation in your life, in your family, in the workplace, in the church. How about this? In the nation. Well, we've heard about Jesus. We may have even given our lives To Jesus, We might even have faith in Jesus in terms of salvation. But when we have saving faith in the person of Jesus, when we know who he really is, we can trust him with every single area of our lives. Every area of our lives. And you better believe there will be other people who have life better off than you do. They can see better than you can. They have more money than you have. They have better health than you have. They have a nicer house than you have, nicer car for sure, better wardrobe than you have and they know Jesus and you know Jesus but they're not going anywhere in their walk with God. They're stuck in a bad way because they're not continuing to have faith in Jesus. They're not continuing to build their life upon the promises of God so you've got to be careful just like I've got to be careful. With the passage of time, you could begin to build your life on words that you put in God's mouth believing God to do things that God never told you he was going to do. Listen, you can build your life upon the promise of the son of David, the identity of Jesus Christ. And do you know how you know whether or not you're building your life on the identity of Jesus and not what you think Jesus needs to give you? When you don't care what Jesus gives you. When you don't care what Jesus gives you, then you know, then you know that Jesus is enough. As for me and my house, I will serve. That's what you need to say, the son of David.
0: You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.